1: today on something you should know people are attracted to people who have a good sense of humor but only a specific type of humor then why the next time someone asks for your advice you might want to
2: not give it there are basically three ways advice giving goes wrong. The first is you're almost always solving the wrong problem. The second reason is that your advice is not nearly as good as you think it is. The third challenge with advice is it's often not a strong leadership act. Also, how you mow your lawn really
1: matters. I'll explain the right way to do it. And cognitive dissonance It's the idea that you have certain beliefs about yourself and about life. And it's very hard to change them.
0: And the more important the belief is to us, the harder it's going to be to accept evidence, even from a credible source, that we might have made a mistake.
1: All this today on Something You Should Know. If you have to hire someone, what's the best way? Referrals? Well, maybe that could work. But just because somebody knows somebody who knows you doesn't necessarily mean they're qualified. Hey. Hey, welcome to Something You Should Know and thanks for listening. You know, we put a lot of time and effort into these episodes and it is very satisfying and gratifying that so many people download and listen and share with their friends and take the time to email me. Uh, you know, most of our listening happens in the United States, but I get emails. I just got an email the other day from uh, East Africa. I get emails from all over the world from people who enjoy this podcast and that means a lot to me, and, and thanks for doing that. First up today, people often say they are attracted to people who have a good sense of humor. But it's a little more complex than that. Looking at research from the past 30 years, what really seems important in relationships is not just having a good sense of humor, but having a similar sense of humor. Couples who laugh together at the same things seem to get along the best. It's not about being a comedian, it's really just about finding the same things funny. Researchers say it's crucial to laugh with your partner, not at them. Having an aggressive sense of humor, in other words making your partner the butt of too many jokes, undoes the magic of shared laughter and likely indicates an underlying bitterness. It's also something to consider in evaluating a new romance. If you and your new date are not laughing at the same things, that can be a red flag. And that is something you should know. When someone asks you for advice, you're inclined to give it. Because, after all, they asked. But maybe giving advice to someone who asked for advice is not the best course of action, at least not right away. And that's the advice of Michael Bungay Stainer. Last year, Michael was named number one thought leader in coaching, and he is considered to be one of the top coaches in the world. He's author of a book called The Advice Trap. Be humble, stay curious, and change the way you lead forever. Hi, Michael. Welcome to Something You Should Know.
2: I'm happy to be here, Michael. Anybody who's called Michael is obviously a talented, good-looking person, so we're off to a perfect start. Well,
1: oh, thanks. Yes, I couldn't agree more. <laughs> <laughs> so what is the advice trap? Explain wh- what it is.
2: The advice trap is not advice itself. There's nothing wrong with advice. Advice is a key part of how we show up in life. You know, it's the essence of this podcast. But the advice trap is when you default into giving advice as your standard reaction anytime anybody comes to you and asks for help. And we, we all know that experience. You know, somebody shows up and starts telling you about a situation, and after about 10 seconds, we've got this little thing in our brain going, oh, I think I know what they should know. I think I should tell them something. That's the advice trap. It seems
1: as if, though, if somebody asks my advice... Well, they're asking for my advice. I should give my advice cause, <laughs> because they asked. If they didn't want it, they wouldn't ask.
2: There is a perfect place for advice, and that might be what this podcast is, which is like when you need to find out you know, anything from the advice trap to what a mushroom is, this is the place to come. But it's the default response that kills you because there, there are basically three ways advice-giving goes wrong, and I'll just list them off quickly for you. The first is this. You're almost always solving the wrong problem if you think that the first challenge that they show up is the real challenge, because the first time somebody's sharing something with you, it's never, it's almost never the real challenge. It's their best guess. It's a stab in the dark. It's a early hypothesis, but the first challenge is really never or very rarely the, the real challenge the second reason where advice goes astray is that your advice is not nearly as good as you think it is and we've got these cognitive biases in our brain that are there to convince us that our advice is pretty awesome all of the time but truth is your advice is not quite as accurate as up to date or as useful as you hope it might be but even in a perfect world, if if you know what the challenge is and you've got really clear what the problem is that needs to be solved, and even if you've got a stonkingly good piece of advice to offer up to that, the third challenge with advice giving is it's often not a strong leadership act because you have this crossroads and you can either be the person who gives them the answer. And in doing so sends them away with a good answer to solve the problem and also sends them away with a subtle or not so subtle message, which is come to me all the time when you have a problem. And my job is to give you the give you the answer or you have the opportunity to say, look, let me help you figure this out. So that not only do we get a good answer, but you walk away going, I feel more confident and more competent and more self-sufficient and more creative, and I'm better able to do stuff on my own.
1: And so there's a level at which this kicks in, because, you know, if somebody pulls up next to me when I'm walking my dog and says, can you tell me where Main Street is? Yeah, I'm just going to tell them where Main Street is. I'm not going to go through the thinking about these three problems with advice giving, because my advice right. is going to be pretty good. And yep. it's going to get them on their way. It's not going to make them feel more confident or anything else. It's just, how do you get to Main Street? So we're talking about things a little more complex than that.
2: On one hand, you're right. I mean, there are plenty of times where there's an obvious answer, uh, answer a question asked, and there's an answer just waiting to be given. And... Just because you said, you know, tell me where Main Street is, I've literally had this moment where somebody said to me, hey, Michael, how do I get to Roncesvalles Avenue, which is the the main street close to where I live in Toronto? And I was just on the cusp of telling them. And I said, hey, well, what, what are you after exactly? And they said, well, I'm actually after this shop, the blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, you know what? There is one on Roncesvalles, but there's one just around the corner from here. And your best bet is actually just to whip around there and go to that alternative branch of the same shop instead. So even with something as obvious as tell me how I get to Main Street, there's a case to be made for saying, hey, just stay curious for 10 seconds longer, 15 seconds longer, because in in asking how do I get to Main Street, they've already gone, my problem is, the solution to my problem is on Main Street. And sometimes they're right and sometimes maybe not so.
1: Yeah, okay. So if if giving advice isn't the answer,
2: what's the answer the answer is to is to stay curious a little bit longer <laughs> and i'm not talking a, you know a week or a day or an hour even i'm saying look in a conversation if you're in that kind of conversation, what we're talking about here, see if you can stay curious an extra two minutes. And just before you rush into advice, when you feel your advice monster looming up out of the dark and you think to yourself, Oh, I've, I've got a good answer for them. I need to tell them what's going on. If you can just say, look, I'll just, I'll just ask another question or two, two minutes. And I'll see how the conversation changes and evolves If I can stay curious a little bit longer. And so how do
1: we know that's better? How do we know that your way is a better way?
2: There's just quite a lot of research that says... That curiosity is a powerful behavior, you know, in a kind of formal leadership way, but just as a human to human way in all walks of life. But, you know, in organizational life, there's, uh, you know, there's research that says the, the rush to try and solve the first problem is almost always a dangerous rush. Because almost always, if you think that the first challenge is the thing that needs to be fixed, you're, you're off, often kidding yourself. I mean, lots of people have heard of the, the five whys and that way of getting to root cause analysis and the power of that. You know, why did that happen? But why does that happen? But why does that happen? And even though that's a formal strategic planning process, it turns out that that same curiosity is powerful on a day-to-day basis, which is to say, look, if you have a conversation that's driven by curiosity, so you do a better job at figuring out what the real problem is, you do a better job at figuring out what the better answer to that problem is, and you do a better job at empowering the people around you so that they feel more able to solve these problems by themselves, well, then that's a win for you and it's a win for them. And you know, in an organizational context, it's a win for your organization and your team as well. And so when somebody
1: comes to you with one of those kinds of questions that you would normally respond with advice, Mm. how, for example, might you respond specifically word for word? Like, how do you how do you do what you're
2: talking about in a very
1: granular way? Practical
2: way. Yeah, sure. So here's a classic one. I'll give you an exact script. You come to me, Michael, and you say, hey, Michael, how do I do x and of course there's no stronger call to action and advice giving when somebody goes hey michael how do i do this because it's just that you know that your whole body is leaning forward going they they actually want me to give advice here so it's the responsible thing to do to tell them exactly what they're asking for so here's your script you go hey michael great question And you know what? I do have some ideas on how you can do X. But you know what? Before I give you my ideas, I bet you've got some thoughts of your own. What's what's the first idea that you've already got? And I will promise you that 99 times out of 100, they they will have an idea. They'll already have a, a first stab, a best guess at what they could do. And what you do is you nod your head and you look interested and engaged and you go, great, that's a nice idea. I like it. And then you go, and what else? What else could you do? And they'll, they'll actually have a second idea, a second thought. And then if you want, you can go, this, this is terrific. Is there anything else you could do? And you, that question, and what else, which is in my previous book, The Coaching Habit, I say this is like the best coaching question in the world because it just means that you squeeze the juice out of any question, out of any situation. You go, and what else, and what else, is there anything else? And at the end of that – if you still have an idea that you want to share, you go look. These are great. I love I love the ideas you come up with so far. Here's what I would add. Here's what I'd put on the table, and maybe there's something useful there as well. And what you're doing here is you're embracing the power of laziness, which is like you know what I've got an idea, but my job is less about being the person who comes up with the fast not always great advice. It's about creating the space for the other people to have their ideas and make sure that they walk out the door with the best possible solution to whatever the challenge is. So that script, I've got some ideas, but before I tell you mine, what ideas do you have and what else and what else? Now, let me tell you, mine is a really powerful way to drive empowerment, but still get good ideas on the table. I'm speaking with
1: Michael Bungay Stainer. He is author of the book, The Advice Trap, Be Humble, Stay Curious, and Change the Way You Lead Forever.
0: Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer, they've changed. So you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now.
1: So Michael, do you ever worry that that people will think, "Hey, you know, let's go ask Michael. He's probably he he knows about this. Let's ask him." And people would say, "Oh no, you don't want to ask him. He is going to squeeze the juice out of it. It's going to take a. <laughs> yeah. This is going to take forty five minutes." And he's going to make you squirm to get the answer yourself. Let's go ask somebody else.
2: Sure. You know, the, the only thing I worry about in all of that is if they say that's going to take us 45 minutes. Because if it, somebody says, look, I can either go to, I can either go to Bob down the, the hallway and get an answer in two minutes, or I have to go through some sort of elaborate process with Michael and it's going to take 45 minutes. Well, obviously, everybody's going to go to Bob. But my standard on it is this, Michael. If you can't coach somebody in five minutes or less, you don't have time to coach them. So speed is of the essence. Now, here's what I'm trying to do with the people I work with. I I, I don't try and be tricky about it. I don't try and be kind of Wizard of Oz, hiding behind the curtains, manipulating the conversation. I'm just really explicit about it. I'm like, you know how we work. I want to make sure you get a great idea. But before I give you my ideas, I'm always going to ask you for your ideas first because I trust you. And I think you're smart and competent and you can get stuff done. So what do you got? You know, what ideas you got? What do you think the real challenge is here for you in all of this? And if you have a a commitment to that other person – if you're willing to help them learn and grow, if you're willing to say part of my job as a leader is to trust you and help you become a better, smarter version of yourself, but to do it in a way that still gets the, the, the work done and doesn't take you know 45 minutes of lying on a, you know, a therapist couch in my office, then you've got to find that blend between the two of them. Companies like Microsoft and Salesforce and Google have taken these strategies and are using them to change their culture, the way they do work, because they've just found that it just doesn't work to be the person who feels like you have to have all the answers and you have to tell your people what to do. You don't have all the answers. The answers you do have aren't nearly as good as you hope they'll be. It's not scalable. And you spend your whole time keeping your people disempowered because they're like, what's the point in me coming up with an answer? I'll just get trumped by Michael's answer. So you, you shoot yourself in the footer if you foot if you become that person who always has to be the person with the answer.
1: Well, I can see that. That that, that makes a, a great deal of sense in a lot of cases. And it, it, what's what's sounding clearer and clearer to me in what you say is, you just have to be really good at figuring out when to pull this out of your quiver, and when to just answer the question.
2: Yeah, and here's what I know to be true: we are, we all are, we all have overdeveloped advice-giving muscles. Like, we're all, pretty, we're all pretty damn good at that. <laughs> there's, there's nobody going, oh, you know, I'm, I just don't give enough advice in my life. Everybody gives a lot of advice. Most of it goes unheeded. The stuff that goes heated often isn't as helpful as we all hope it will be. This power to say curious a little bit longer is something that can become an everyday leadership act, an everyday leadership behavior that really can shift the way relationships are built and work is done. But to your point... You know, Daniel Goldman, 20 years ago, wrote an article for the Harvard Business Review called Leadership That Gets Results. And he says, look, great leaders know how to use all six different styles of leadership. And most leaders only know how to use two or perhaps three of those uh, leadership styles. Coaching, being more coach-like, was one of those leadership styles. It was the least utilized of all the leadership styles. So to your point, it's about just trying to rebalance your behavior so you're building curiosity into more of your day-to-day actions. Because sometimes you have to not get people to
1: answer the question. You have to teach them how to do something, and then let them go. But, but if they don't have the fundamentals, asking them sure. what they think is kind of a big waste
2: of time. Well, that's true, although it depends also on the teaching moment. So there's obviously some technical stuff that... It only works if you teach it to them, you know, if there's been if there's a download and exchange of of technical information. But there's a lot of evidence to say the best learning uh, process is actually to start people trying to figure stuff out themselves, even if they're starting from a place of almost knowing nothing. Because people make quite a lot of progress and deepen the sense of ownership and deepen the sense of curiosity if they're learning from from starting from scratch. You know, when I am running my training courses around coaching skills, I actually start people practicing coaching before I've taught them anything. And there's this kind of look of incredulity in the room when I start doing this because they're like, "Wait, wait, you haven't taught us anything yet. What are we doing here? And I'm like, yeah, but let's see how it goes when you don't know anything and see what you learn immediately. And then I can start layering in teaching based on your experience of it so far. So. To your point, obviously there's a place where you're like, you know what, here's the technical specifications, let them give them to you because there's no point in you trying to figure this out. But in a lot of stuff, actually, even if they don't know something, it's still worth them having a go.
1: Yeah, well, but it can also be frustrating, too, if you don't have the fundamentals to solve the problem and people right. are telling you to give it a shot and you guys I, I was thinking back as you were talking when, <laughs> when I was in high school and, and math was not my big subject but my dad was very good at math and he would try to help me with my homework and he, he would mm-hmm. he would do what you, you're suggesting he would say well go ahead and give it a shot and it was so right. frustrating because I have I had no idea and I, I couldn't get from zero to one And then he would have to show me how to do it. But we weren't going to go very long with me trying to do it myself.
2: Right. So it is just the point you were making earlier on, which is like it's finding the balance and going is now the time for me to share the advice, to teach, teach the lesson. And this kind of comes around nicely around where we started, which is, well, what's the advice trap? The advice trap isn't advice. The advice trap isn't teaching the advice trap when giving advice becomes your default response to every situation and that's what a lot of us have and that's the behavior we're looking to break
1: i wonder why we don't do this more naturally why we kind of didn't evolve to teach people you know the old you know give a man a fish and you'll feed him for a day kind of thing why we why we don't do that normally
2: yeah You know, there's there's an answer there that combines both nature and nurture. So the nurture side is that we We live in society which rewards people all the time for passing the test for having the answer. You know when when your kid is passing the math test, it just matters in the end that they know that eight and eight is sixteen. It doesn't always matter if they understand the principles of that. So through school, through our early career, we're always encouraged to be the person to, that knows your stuff. You know, will you pass the the exam, whether it's a literal exam or a metaphorical exam? But there's a biological reason as well, which is, you know, we in our our amygdala, this kind of lizard brain, as it's so called, it's one of the oldest parts of our brain and sits on the top of our brainstem there at the back of our head. It, it in an unconscious way, reads our environment five times a second and asking am I safe here or am I at risk? You know, it's very much primed to help you survive. And one of the things that it's looking for and dislikes is uncertainty. It's always going, look, if if I know what's going to happen, I feel safer. And if I feel safer, I'm more likely to survive. And if I'm more likely to survive, that's, that's the purpose of my DNA, which is to survive. So the DNA can continue on down the line. So we have a way that we're trying to unlearn some primitive behavior, primitive instincts to say, look, when you stay curious, you actually put yourself in a place of unknowing a little bit longer. And there's one part of us that goes, why would I do that? (laughs) Aren't I at risk? But the truth is, you know, in in our more civilized times, that place of curiosity, that opening up of possibilities, it's what allows us to start creating our future.
1: And so I think the next time somebody asks me for advice, I'm going to really try and stop and not and not offer it and, and try your way and see what happens. Michael Bungay-Stainer has been my guest. Michael was named the number one thought leader in coaching last year, and he is considered to be one of the top coaches around. His book is called The Advice Trap. Be humble, stay curious, and change the way you lead forever. And you'll find a link to that book in the show notes.
2: Thank you, Michael. My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
1: This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Welcome to the Snapple Market
0: Auditory Experience. Close your eyes. Imagine you're walking into your neighborhood store. You make your way to the back and reach for your favorite Snapple flavor. You can't wait. You take a sip. Whoa, that's a lot of flavor. Hmm. What flavor are you holding? Now, open your eyes and check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavorful Snapple near you.
1: As a listener to Something You Should Know, I can only assume that you are someone who likes to learn about new and interesting things and bring more knowledge to work for you in your everyday life. I mean, that's kind of what Something You Should Know is all about. If you think about it for a moment, you can probably recall, without a whole lot of trouble, something you've done in your past that was wrong, or lacked judgment, or was foolish. And rather than admit you were wrong, or lacked judgment, or were foolish, you justified what you did. You reconciled what you did with the fact that you're a decent person. That is cognitive dissonance in action. It's hard to admit when you do something dumb when you don't, in fact, think of yourself as dumb. It doesn't line up with your beliefs about yourself, so you justify it to reconcile it. And we all do it. It's interesting that we do it, but there are more important consequences to it as well. Carol Tavris is a social psychologist and author. Her latest book is called Mistakes Were Made But Not By Me. Why We Justify Foolish Beliefs, Bad Decisions, and Hurtful Acts. Hey, Carol, welcome. Well, I'm so happy to be here, Mike. So explain in more detail what cognitive dissonance is and why it's so important for us to discuss it and understand it.
0: There's no news in the fact that we will uh... lie to other people and justify our actions to other people when the consequences could be that we get fired or divorced or some awful thing happens to us the insidious thing about cognitive dissonance the crucial thing to understand about it is that we reduce the conflict we feel between two crashing ideas we do it unconsciously without even being aware that we're doing this So. Um, what dissonance, all that dissonance means is we hold a belief, the most powerful form of this is a belief about ourselves. I am a good, kind, competent, smart person, and now you are telling me I just did something foolish, bad, harmful, unethical, and wrong. Uh, let me tell you where you can go with your, <laughs> with your criticism, yeah? We could accept the dissonant information but that's hard to do this is a mechanism we all do because it's really uncomfortable to live with dissonance for example i mean we see this look at the thousands of michael jackson fans who had such trouble accepting the documentary evidence that he was most likely a child uh, molester. molester yeah? that's where the discomfort is see and what people tend to do is resolve it in an adamant way, see, instead of saying, um, okay, I love Michael Jackson's music, but, and he did these bad things. Instead, what many people wanted to do was deny that he did the really bad things or chuck out any, any feeling of support for him and his music. So it's important, I think, to understand how dissonance works, because when we do understand it, we can see it operating in ourselves and take some more control over it.
1: Well, sometimes, uh, I don't know about that example specifically, but sometimes you'll hear something that co- that contradicts what you believe, and at least for me, I'll take the stance that, w- well, maybe, but... I'm, I'm not going to believe it just because you said so. Uh, you're going to have to prove to me that uh, that this is true, that just because you say it doesn't make it right.
0: Oh, of course. Well, first of all, let me make it clear. Of course, many people accept useful, informative uh, information that, that we need to have. I'm not saying everybody is closed-minded. And in the best of all possible worlds, we accept evidence that is supported, uh, right? And... Um, uh, and, and worth listening to. No, no, this is, a different, this is a different matter. And let's take as an example the vaccine situation. The anti-vax movement began with a fraudulent story. This man, Andrew Wakefield, this doctor who took money from lawyers, $800,000, to claim that the vaccines caused autism, he, was, he lost his medical license. His article in Lancet was retracted. But what happens is when people have to make a choice, a decision, do I want to buy a Prius or a, an SUV? Do I want to believe Michael Jackson or, uh, uh, or not? Do I want to believe that vaccines cause autism or not? The minute we make a decision, we will now be motivated to keep our beliefs in harmony with the decision we made, and to minimize or trivialize, overlook, forget any information that is discrepant or deviant. So um, it would be nice to think we were all open-minded, and we are open-minded before we make a decision, before we commit ourselves to a belief. After we make that decision, after we accept that belief, then we then we spend a lot of mental energy justifying it. And the more important the belief is to us, the harder it will be for us to change our minds. The more effort and energy, attention and time we have put into justifying that belief, the harder it's going to be to accept evidence, even from a credible source, (laughs) uh, that we might have made a mistake. And we see this is what has happened with the anti-vax movement, The more these people committed themselves to the idea that vaccines cause autism, in spite of massive evidence from every health organization around the world, what did they do? They increased their commitment to the belief that vaccines are dangerous. That's how dissonance reduction works, and that's why it can be so self-defeating.
1: Well, it may be defeating, but isn't it also a coping mechanism, it seems, because Every time I do something wrong, or every time I make a misjudgment, I can't just—I just can't sit around and beat myself up about it. I'm, I have to—I have to somehow reconcile it with who I am, in order to carry on with my life. You see, here's here's the the basic premise.
0: What cognitive dissonance is is a conflict, a clash between two beliefs or a belief and a behavior, and we are motivated, as I say, unconsciously to keep them in harmony. So if our action is dissonant with our belief, uh, you know, I'm a good, honest person, but I'm going to cheat just this once here on this this exam or on this office thing. I'm going to cheat just this once. It's no big deal. The minute I cheat... I must now make my views about cheating consonant with what I have done. So I will now decide that cheating isn't really such an awful thing. Everybody cheats. It's no big deal. If I resist the temptation to cheat, my beliefs about cheating will move in the other direction. Cheating really is, you know, not a victimless crime, and it's a bad thing to do. So this is the principle in social psychology as well. When people are are obligated to behave in certain ways to wear seat belts to have their children vaccinated to pick up their trash and so forth their attitudes will follow this is a good thing to do I am a smart good parent Uh, after all I want the best for my child
1: and so forth it's interesting that uh, that example you you used about cheating because there is—I mean, every, everybody—you can't go through life and not cheat somewhere, sometime. I mean, everybody and everybody justifies it. Oh, I cheat on my taxes because everybody does it. And exactly. I, yeah. I, mm-hmm. And and in some cases, every, you know, everybody does do it. I mean, or pretty much. I mean, there's a there are a lot of people cheat on their taxes or they fudge a little bit. And, uh, and I think it's partly because the tax laws are, are so vague and, and difficult to interpret that that allows for that. <laughs> that makes it, it makes it very possible to say, well, it could be that. And okay.
0: <laughs> well, of course. I, we're all very good at justifying this. It's a, tr- it's a small thing, no big deal, everybody does it. I mean, we all have plenty of those. The point is less that, though. Than than this. In our book, we have a metaphor we call the pyramid of choice. You know, you imagine two people at the top of a pyramid with the same attitudes about cheating. This was actually an experiment that was done with children. You know, it's not a great thing. It's not the worst crime in the world. It's no big deal. Everybody does it. but but I wouldn't if I didn't have to, etc. Okay, not, not not a strong feeling one way or the other, but. If given an opportunity to cheat or resist cheating, now this is what happens, you see, that's so interesting. The first step, the first time you justify cheating, it may indeed be a trivial issue. But over time, and if that decision is then reinforced by subsequent opportunities to cheat, more and more of them, it becomes harder in a way to go back up the pyramid and say that first step I took was wrong. We have a story in our book of Jeb Stuart Magruder who, when he was hired in the Nixon White House, he had no idea what he was going to end up doing, the immoral, unethical, and illegal acts that he did for the president. He started out just, you know, a really good guy, step by step, justifying each small act of corruption and wrongdoing, see? And by the end as he wrote brilliantly in his autobiography, I couldn't believe how far I had fallen. Somewhere along the line, I lost my moral compass. And that's really the issue. It's not that one decision about your taxes or that one decision to whatever it might be. It's whether it sets us on a path of behavior that is harmful and wrong or corrupt or unethical From which we then cannot extricate ourselves because we have put so much energy into saying it's the right thing.
1: But you can't live your life questioning every decision you make and saying, but what if I'm wrong? You'll never get anywhere.
0: Exactly right. No, that's absolutely true. We must live our lives. With, with convictions and with passion for the things we believe in and care most about. No question. If you, had to, if you had to go and get the research on brushing your teeth every morning before breakfast, you know you could never get through the day. No, that's absolutely true. We all live according to our beliefs and convictions, and we must. The challenge is the wisdom of holding those beliefs lightly enough so that if better evidence comes along, evidence, we will be able to change our minds. How many doctors continued to practice radical mastectomies on their patients with breast cancer long after the evidence showed that lumpectomy was just as effective and not disfiguring? See, that's where you want, you don't want doctors to change their minds every two minutes, but once there's a massive persuasive amount of evidence. You want them to be able to say, now is the time to change our minds. Um, That's why it matters. We talk about this because it's both important to live with convictions and important to change our mind once we need to, whether this is professionally, politically, socially, psychologically. It's not easy.
1: And so what's the step, though, what's the baby step to get your head around this? How do you start to be that person who leaves the door open for new evidence when you're typically not that kind of person?
0: Well, we we love a story, this is a true story, of uh, Shimon Peres, who was then Prime Minister of Israel, when his good friend, Ronald Reagan, accepted the invitation to go to the uh, cemetery at Bitburg in Germany, which turned out to uh, have 47 Nazi Waffen SS officers buried there. And as you can imagine, the world was pretty horrified by Reagan's decision to do this. And so someone asked Shimon Perez, well, what do you think of this, your friend Ronald Reagan going to Bitburg? And Perez said, now, okay, the normal thing people would do, is end the friendship or diminish the importance of this visit to Bitburg? Paris said, when a friend makes a mistake, the friend remains a friend and the mistake remains a mistake. That's a guy telling us how to live with dissonance, meaning when I make a mistake, when I do something that's wrong and hurtful, I remain a good, decent, smart person, but what I did remains foolish and hurtful. And I don't need to spend a lot of time and heat and energy propping up a belief that's past its shelf life. What, what am I doing? I mean, Elliot and I laugh about this because you'd think, you know, if, if your beloved says to you, you know what, honey, I've been thinking about that running argument we've had for the last 20 20- you're right. You're completely right, and I was completely wrong. Does the world fall in? No. <laughs> Does your beloved say, I knew it. You know, Thank you so much. You know, when people actually admit error, admit wrongdoing, when doctors tell their patients, you know, yes, I did make a mistake. Let's talk about this. All human beings make a mistake. Uh, the world doesn't fall apart. People are glad to hear it when someone admits that they did something wrong and, that, and they changed their mind for a better solution. So in, effect, in fact, the rewards are great for admitting when we are wrong, um, but we don't seem to recognize that as often as perhaps we should.
1: There does seem to be a difference between people making a mistake there's a, a, mm-hmm. and deliberately doing something wrong. You commit a crime, you know you're committing a crime, that You know that's wrong going in. You make a mistake, and you find out later you made a mistake. But to me, those are very different.
0: Well, they are very different. No, uh, this, the, they are very different because in the former case, you know, you, you know you're a con man. Con men don't feel any dissonance. Yeah, I just robbed this woman out of her life savings. So what? She's a chump. She should have known better. There's no dissonance there. Um, and if you know that you're going to commit a crime, you'll... You know, you'll come up with plenty of reasons for it, but that's not the issue here. The issue here is the mistake that you made. By by mistake, I mean something like this. The mistake you made was believing that children never lie about sex abuse. Hmm? That belief started a massive hysterical epidemic in our society. Children never lie. Are you kidding? This is something that can only be said by someone who wasn't a child or never knew a child.
1: Children, you know, <laughs> they lie all the time. They
0: lie all the time. In fact, <laughs> in fact, um, some theorists say that language emerged so that we can lie. <laughs> you know? um, in any case, uh, you see. But if you if you carry that belief with you, that's a mistaken belief it's a narrow belief it's a limited belief um and it's it's wrong it, and children don't have to lie in the way adults think about lying to be wrong it's the same with any adult who uh i mean we see this in our society today think of the dissonance people feel when uh, a woman makes an accusation or a man makes an accusation and we're supposed to believe them unquestioningly but you don't have to be lying To be wrong, you can be misremembering, you can be confabulating, you can be influenced by people around you. To be wrong. Uh, But when we hold a a rigid belief, then it allows no exceptions. And what happens over time is that a person can get backed into a corner of throwing more and more defensive self-justifications on that belief till the point where they finally can't back out of that corner at all that's what we mean by a mistake not a not a crime not a simple mistake that you know at the, the minute you do it you made a mistake but 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 a belief you hold that really you should be modifying by now
1: <laughs> and when you modify it when you realize you know hey well i guess children do lie and and mm-hmm. mistakes were made and people got hurt but you still need to carry on with your life and not feel horrible every moment of every waking day uh, for the mistake you made. You somehow have to reconcile, I made a mistake, but it doesn't mean the end of the world for me, because, you know, what, what good is that?
0: No, exactly right, Mike. That's exactly right. Remember, here's Perez, you know, if when I make a mistake, I can remain a good, kind, good Person, but what I did remains a mistake. So the task for us is to admit and accept what we did wrong or what belief we held that was wrong. Get it. Understand it. Not just throw it overboard in one second. Well, I'm fine and this is no big deal. But live with it enough to understand what was wrong with what you thought and did. Accept the harms that you might have caused for others. And then, indeed, the point is not to dwell on it forever. The whole point of cognitive dissonance reduction, the fact that we do reduce dissonance the way we do, is precisely so that we don't have sleepless nights. Everybody knows about buyer's remorse and what a miserable feeling that is. And the goal is not to live your life beating yourself up over regrets, over choices that were wrong over decisions that turned out to be foolish or so forth. No, I completely agree with you. Um, Dissonance reduction is what lets us sleep at night. But sometimes a few sleepless nights are called for so that we don't throw away the chance to learn what we were doing that was wrong and to make some amends for it. We tell a story in the book of a young man who was texting and driving and got into a terrible car accident and caused the death of the driver in the other car. So that boy could have, that young man, could have just said there's no problem with texting and driving, you know everybody does it it's okay uh, and you know it was his fault and it's not a big deal and and at the trial at his trial, he heard the evidence of the scientists talking about how distracted driving texting is like driving drunk, blind drunk, you just are setting yourself up for an accident, and as this accumulated scientific evidence hit him in the head, he said. Holy cow, look what I've done. Look what I've done. Now, should he sleep the rest of his life? Well, of course he should, but what he decided to do was to become a spokesman for the dangers of texting and driving. He spends his time talking to teenagers and young adults about these hazards. He says, I'm here because I don't want you to be like me, to happen to you what happened to me. That's learning from your mistake.
1: Well, it's interesting that this is something everyone does. We all do it. We all justify our actions and reconcile it. And yet we don't talk about it much, but we just did. Carol Tavris has been my guest. She's a social psychologist and author of the book, Mistakes Were Made, But Not By Me, Why We Justify Foolish Beliefs, Bad Decisions, and Hurtful Acts. There's a link to that book in the show notes. Thanks for being here, Carol.
2: Thank you,
0: Mike.
1: So, how do you mow your lawn? Do you go side to side, front to back, or perhaps you go diagonally? Well, actually, it's best to do all of those things. When cutting the grass, you want to switch up the routine. Not just for kicks, but for your lawn. Cutting the grass in the same pattern every time trains the grass to grow in one direction. Over time, that flattens the grass and... And who wants flat grass? So the next time you mow, give the neighbors and your grass a thrill and take an alternate route. If you use a lawn service, go ahead and request that they alternate the pattern. With all those lawns and tight schedules, many of them are also prone to fall into a routine. And that is something you should know. We love ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you listen. Just take a moment, give us a rating and review. It helps. I'm Mike Carruthers. Thanks for listening today to Something You Should Know